We've been working through the book of Esther. It's not a long book. You can sit down and read it in just a few minutes uh, at home, you know, anytime. We've been working on it for the last three weeks, and today we'll wrap it up. And in our final lesson from Esther today, we have both tragedy and great joy at the same time. It seems like an odd pairing, but we're actually pretty used to this in life. We're, it's, a, it's a combination that we're familiar with. For example, someone commits a terrible crime. They get caught. They go to trial. They're found guilty. Let's say they're sentenced to 30 years in prison. That's a terrible tragedy. What they did is terrible. What is going to happen to them now is terrible. It's a terrible fate to have to spend the rest of your life or or much of your life in prison. We should grieve over that. But at the same time, The victim of the crime does not grieve over the sentence that was handed down. The victim is satisfied, even grateful, maybe even joyful, because that's justice. When the criminal is punished, the victim gets some relief, knowing the threat against their safety has been taken away. So tragedy and joy at the same time. Or think about May 8th. 1845. Do any of you remember that day and are brave enough to admit it? (laughs) Yes, Marcella, for sure. That was a big day. Some of you remember that. Victory in Europe Day, when Nazi Germany finally surrendered. And it ended World War II in Europe. Do you remember all the celebration and the rejoicing across Europe and across the United States. Now, most of us weren't there that day, but we've seen the pictures. We've heard the stories. The fighting was over. And the invaders had been repelled. The Nazis had been stopped. Peace was returning to Europe and to a large portion of the world. The war, that part of it anyway, was over. And that so many people had been killed in the war was nothing short of tragic. But the war was over. That was cause for great joy. Tragedy and joy at the same time. In much the same way, imagine the joy that the Jewish people in the Persian Empire in 474 B.C. felt when they heard that wicked Haman, who had plotted to destroy all the Jews, had suddenly been executed by King Xerxes, as we read last week at the end of Esther chapter 7. Imagine their joy. Now, it's a tragedy anytime anyone has to be executed for doing evil or has to be judged and convicted by a court. It's going to be a tragedy when people are ultimately judged by God. That's a tragedy. But that Haman fell and the Jewish people were saved, that they were free of the threat that he was to them, that was reason for rejoicing. So to review what we've studied so far from Esther, in chapters 1 and 2, in the 400s B.C., Esther, a young Jewish woman living in the city of Susa, one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire, was chosen by the king of Persia to be his new queen. But she kept her Jewish heritage secret. Even he did not know that she was from a family of Jews. In chapters 3 and 4, a little later, 
Haman, recently appointed to be a high official, probably the right-hand man of the king, and a descendant of ancient enemies of Israel, hated the Jews. And when Mordecai the Jew refused to kneel before Haman, Haman used his authority from the king to decree that all the Jews, not just Mordecai, but all the Jews, were to be destroyed on a certain day, 11 months ahead. On our calendar, that would be March 473 B.C. In chapters 5 to 7, Queen Esther just happened to be Mordecai's adopted daughter, her, his cousin whom he had adopted when her parents died. And God, seeing the threat that was coming against his people, had positioned Esther to be queen of Persia. And she went bravely to the king, risking her life, and begged for his help. And she revealed to him the man who had arranged for the destruction of herself and all her people, because guess what? She was a Jew. An adversary and enemy, she said. This vile Haman. And the king, when he realized what had happened... And the threat against his queen was furious, and he ordered Haman's immediate execution, and this great enemy of the Jews was suddenly gone. And that's a terrible thing, the death of anyone. But I doubt that the Jews whose lives he had intended to destroy lost much sleep over his passing. No, they thanked God profusely, I'm sure, for delivering them from this evil man. We would have done the same. But the story doesn't end there. Because one problem still remained. Haman's decree commanding the destruction of all the Jews was still in force. It was to be done on the 13th day of the 12th month of their calendar. On that day, the whole empire was to turn on the Jewish people and wipe them out. It would have been just as bad for the Jews as the Holocaust during World War II was. Maybe even worse, if you can imagine that. The Persian Empire at the time is estimated to have had some 50 million people in it, that doesn't seem like a lot by our standards today, but back then it was roughly a third to half of the entire global population. A third to half of all humanity was in the Persian Empire, and nearly all the Jews were in the Persian Empire. If Haman's decree was carried out, it had the real potential to wipe out the Jews as a people. They would be gone, and everything God planned to do through them would be gone as well. And once a decree went out in the name of the king of Persia, sealed with his ring, it could not be undone, apparently, not even by the king. And so that decree is still there. We come to Esther chapter 8. Haman himself is gone, but his decree, published in the name of the king, still remains. We'll finish the book of Esther this morning. And Lord willing, by the time we get to the end of today's lesson, if you've been with us for all four lessons, you will have read together with us the entire book of Esther. Chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman. That's the day Haman was killed, same day. The enemy of the Jews. 
And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The very day Haman was executed, his entire estate was given to Esther, and she put Mordecai in charge of it. In Persia, as in many countries at that time, if you were caught betraying the king, you could be killed, which Haman was, and the king could confiscate all your property so that it was not passed down to your descendants, and the king does that here. And the king gives all of Haman's authority to Mordecai also. Mordecai receives the king's signet ring and replaces Haman as the king's second in command. But Haman's decree is still there. The king hasn't ended it. And so Esther bravely comes before the king again, pleading and falling at his feet and weeping. And for the second time, the king extends his gold scepter to her to spare her life. And she pleads for him 
to counteract that order that Haman wrote to destroy the Jews across the empire. And she makes it a very personal request, tugging on the heart of the king. She says, if it pleases the king, and if he thinks it's the right thing to do, but she also says, if he regards me with favor, and if he is pleased with me, because these were her people, and how could she stand by and watch them be destroyed? And again, the king listens to her, as he did before. He authorizes Esther and Mordecai to write a new decree in behalf of the Jews to seal it with his signet ring so that what they decree cannot be undone. And they do it. On June 25th, 474 B.C. on our calendar, a little over two months after Haman's order went out, they send out a new command for the entire empire. That on the day chosen for the Jews' enemies to destroy them, the Jews now have the right to assemble and protect themselves and to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed men who might attack them. That's exactly the same wording Haman used in his decree to have all the Jews uh, destroyed. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. They're using Haman's words now in their new decree. It's reversed here. In fact, all Haman's efforts are being completely reversed because of the evil he'd planned against God's people. Because anyone who sets themselves against God's people sets themselves against God. Notice that the Jews did not have the right to just attack anybody they wanted. They had authority only to defend themselves against anyone who attacked them. They also had the right to plunder the property of their enemies who attacked them. But again, only, only the property of people who tried to kill them. They couldn't just go take whatever they wanted. And so that's how Mordecai and Esther undo the decree of Haman. His decree still stands. There's nothing they can do about that. But now the Jews can defend themselves. And that changes the situation entirely. And so the humiliation that Mordecai had endured because of Haman's hatred and the fear and grief of the Jews across the empire because of Haman is all just gone. So look at verse 15, chapter 8, verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. This is a time of great joy for all the Jews. Mordecai was clothed in royal garments. No more sackcloth for him. Royal garments and the Jews have hope again. And so the Jews who had mourned, fasted, wept, and wailed when Haman's order went out two months earlier now celebrate with feasting and gladness and joy. In this moment, when the Jews everywhere hear about Esther and Mordecai's decree allowing them to defend themselves, it's like all those times in Israel's history when God's people were oppressed, their enemies beat them down, they would have had no hope, but God rose up and delivered them. In Exodus 14, when God rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, 
Many Egyptians died at the Red Sea, which is terribly tragic. But the Israelites survived, and God set them free. And in Exodus 15, Moses and the Israelites rejoice and celebrate how God has rescued them. In Psalm 54, verse 7, David says to God, You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Which is a great thing. Not that we ever desire to have foes to triumph over, but that we sure don't want God to let it end up the other way around. We need God to thwart the plans of the wicked and lift up those who do what is right, who love their neighbors and who seek peace. And when he does, we rejoice. And we believe that even as God has done this for his people from time to time, first in Israel, now in his church, a day is coming when he will do it for us in an ultimate way. Our memory verse for this series has been Romans 8, verse 28. Let's read that together again this morning, twice through. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Once more. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Thank you for sharing our memory verse with me again today. That statement comes in the context uh, of the Apostle Paul explaining in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that one day all our present sufferings will pale in comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us, is how he says it. When God redeems and glorifies his people. And God's Holy Spirit helps us in the meantime as we ache and groan and pray, waiting for that day, waiting for God to set us free from the frustration of this world and, and what Paul calls its bondage to decay and, and all our own weakness. The Holy Spirit helps us with all this. And so Paul wants us to know as we look ahead toward eternal life that even in all of our hardship now, God works for the good of those who love him. And even in the midst of whatever suffering we have to face, he's leading us toward what Paul calls the freedom and glory of the children of God. And so we believe that what God did for the Jews of Esther's time, he has been doing for his people from the beginning, and he will do it for us until and through the end in the fullest, most ultimate way. And so we take hope in our God even on the hardest days. God, who has saved his people over and over throughout the course of history, will save us again. He will save us again. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. The edict of Mordecai and Esther went out in the name of the king, to give the Jews the right to defend themselves against their enemies who attacked them. And when that day came, they did defend themselves. Chapter 9, verse 1. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. 
On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed, and I apologize to Johnny, our interpreter, for all these names. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, we'll read slowly so you can keep up, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Johnny, we're halfway through. Aridatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamedatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for for giving presents to each other. The day of the conflict on our calendar was March 7th, 473 B.C. For a neutral observer, what happens that day and the next is tremendously sad. 75,000 people lose their lives, plus 800 in the city of Susa. Plus, if I'm understanding the king correctly, in addition to the 500 killed on the first day in Susa, Haman's 10 sons. 
tremendously sad. But remember that the people who were killed were the ones trying to kill the Jews. The Jews were only defending themselves. Apparently, Haman's ten sons were part of that group that tried to kill the Jews in Susa. And that's a tremendous shame. A preacher friend of mine a few years ago pointed out that um, to Haman, his ten sons were a source of great pride. But it ended up being that same pride that got them all killed. What a shame. Our pride, any of our sin, really can do great harm to those we love. The Jews were not neutral observers. Enemies had tried to destroy them, but they were still alive. Any nation that is invaded by another, shouldn't it rejoice with when its invaders fall and the war ends? On Victory in Europe Day, Weren't the wide-ranging celebrations more than appropriate? Wouldn't it have seemed wrong if no one had celebrated that the war had ended? And as God's people, we take no delight in the destruction of our enemies because God himself does not delight in destroying anyone. But we have great joy when God gives us victory. Because it means God is making things right as they should be. He's bringing his people peace. He's holding the wicked accountable and vindicating the righteous. He is saving us. The Jews across the Persian Empire are not neutral observers in these events. Nobles and officials across the empire support the Jews because they don't want to get on Mordecai's bad side. Chapter 8, verse 17 says many people become Jews themselves as the Jews are rising in influence in the kingdom. On the day of the fighting, Esther and Mordecai direct the Jewish resistance from the king's court in Susa. Haman's ten sons are killed and their bodies are put on display. 800 people who attack the Jews in Susa are killed there over two days. 75,000 who attack the Jews are killed across the empire. Those numbers make you wonder how many Jews would have been killed if they had not been given authority to fight back and if the local officials and nobles had not supported them. Chapter 9, verse 1 says, On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The tables were turned. Our God turns the tables on the wicked. And that's one big reason why we trust him. Mordecai and Esther's decree stated that the Jews had the right to plunder the property of their enemies, whoever tried to destroy them. That was another reversal of Haman's decree because Haman's decree said that whoever killed the Jews could claim their goods. But three times the text tells us, emphasizing, they did not take the plunder of their enemies. Chapter 9, verse 10, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder when they killed Haman's sons. Verse 15, they did not lay their hands on the plunder in the city of Susa. 16, they did not lay their hands on the plunder in the rest of the empire. Why not? Because they weren't fighting 
or killing anyone for personal gain. They were just trying to defend themselves. And then the fighting stopped. They did not take any of the plunder. Then when the fighting was done, verse 17, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. And that celebration then becomes an annual tradition. So let's continue. Chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is, the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. The book of Esther records the origin of the Jewish festival of Purim, which celebrates God's deliverance of the Jews from the efforts of Haman to destroy them. Purim is still a day of celebration for Jews today, with feasting, reading the story of Esther, having fun, giving gifts to friends and to neighbors and to the poor, most of all, it's a day for remembering how God saved his people. Mordecai and Esther instructed Jews everywhere to celebrate Purim every year, and they still do so today. Purim typically comes in March or April on our calendar, so watch for it when next spring rolls around. And they celebrated because, verse 22 says, this was when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And we do the same thing when we celebrate the greatest thing God has done for us yet, even bigger than what he did through Esther. 
how God gave Jesus his son to die for us, for our forgiveness. And then he raised Jesus from the dead. We celebrate that every Easter and really uh, every week and, in a sense, every day. And one day, we're going to share in the greatest celebration ever. Bigger and better than after the Exodus when the Israelites rejoiced. Even more joyful than Purim. Even grander than remembering the resurrection of Jesus. It'll be like all of those, but multiplied by eternity. One day, Jesus, our Lord, will return, and all our sufferings will seem so small in comparison with the glory God will give to his children when he saves us and brings us into the eternal freedom he has prepared for us. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And that great judgment day, it's going to be that mix all over again. It'll be a tragic day for many, but for God's people, devoted to him and forgiven, it will be a day of joy like we've never seen before. May God speed that day. Now, the very end of the book of Esther, chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. Xerxes was a mighty king. But to the Jews, the hero here at the end of the story is Mordecai. Well, why Mordecai and not Esther? That doesn't seem fair. Well, probably because once these events had passed, it was Mordecai who became the main Jewish figure in political affairs of the empire. Esther had done her part. Now Mordecai does his. None of us gets to be the star of the show forever. And the last thing the writer wants us to know is that Mordecai turns out to be just the opposite of Haman. Haman wielded power for his own benefit. Mordecai wields power for the benefit of his people. Much as Jesus later will use his power from God, not for himself, but to benefit all who seek him. And so the Jewish people were saved. And in their rescue, we see a glimpse of the even greater rescue that God gives to us daily and will give to us in the most ultimate way when Jesus comes again. May God speed that day. May God bless you as you meditate on the story of Esther. Let's pray together. Our dear God, thank you for being the God who rescues us, who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, who rescued the Jewish people from destruction in the time of Esther and Mordecai. Thank you for being the God who raised your son from the dead after wicked people had killed him. Thank you for being the God who rescues us daily, how we depend on you, O oh Lord. Thank you for being the God who one day will rescue us forever. Thank you, dear God, that in all things you work for the good of those who love you.
who have been called according to your purpose. Lord God, we love you. And we see you working for good in our lives. And when it's hard to see it, Lord, we look ahead to when the ultimate good will be uh, accomplished. Thank you for the work you're doing in that direction. Lord God, bless your church. Fill us with faith and hope. Strengthen us daily as we look to you. Lord God, bless us with um, uh, courage as we serve you. Help us, uh, Lord, by granting us skill in declaring the message of Jesus to all who need to hear it. Lord God, go with us this day. Go with us this week. Bless us once again. We look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.